So let's get started. Uh, it, it's a continuation of our series on, on uh, Jesus, who are you and what are you doing? And uh, I'm excited about tonight because I think if we can come out of the, the, the message tonight with a possibly different point of focus about what Jesus uh, did, you know, primarily. Uh, my guess is, is, is that if we were to take a survey uh, and just had a fill-in-the-blank type thing, what was the primary thing Jesus came to do? Um, I, I have an idea that I might... I know in a lot of circles what, what the answer would be. The answer would be that he came to, to uh, die for our sins, to finish, you know, forgive our sins and stuff, which I'm not arguing that he, that he did and that he has and that he is. But uh, tonight, I think I can suggest, and then we'll have some conversation about it, that there is a uh, priority that precedes that, actively and historically. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But because it's important to review, (laughs) here is the review slide. It actually has two buttons. All right, so first of all, we're talking the logos, the word, the creative agent. Uh, this is who Jesus is, and it's super, it's super important for us to remember that. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Logos, and the Word, Logos, was God. Now, that is just such a fundamental understanding of the Gospel. And uh, it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. Uh, there are certain uh, groups in Christianity that are frustrated by the concept that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. And so they have a tendency to toss out the whole Trinitarian thinking as an unbiblical deal. Uh, it, it is true that, that uh, the word Trinity has not got a Greek equivalent in the Bible, but there's uh, a bunch of individual applications that point to the divinity of God, the divinity of the Father, divinity of the Son, divinity of the Spirit. And this is one of the biggest ones, but it's not just a matter of of agreeing with that doctrine. It's what the reality of, of the Logos, the Word, the Word becoming flesh, the Word being Jesus. It's what the reality is as the basis for everything to come out of flow out of. And I've mentioned this a couple times, and I just want you to keep it in mind. Things that we have a tendency to take for granted, of, granted have either one of two origins. They are either abstract, uh, moral, or judicial decisions, or they flow out of an organic relationship that is eternal. One of those that's easy to think about is communication. If God isn't in the beginning with the Word, the Word with God, 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 if there wasn't room for a dynamic flow of communication, independent of creation, independent of time, then that means that our ability to talk to one another and to communicate ideas to one another, to hear ideas and so on, was an invention on its own. Now granted, it would have been an invention by God, and that doesn't mean it wouldn't have been good, But what I want you to understand is that the beauty of this face-to-face relationship between the Logos and the Father, the Logos and God, 
created a space where communication has eternal divine origin. Jesus saying, the Father's greater than I. The ability for him to honor the Father that way isn't just a a judicial moral list. It's a real extension of a dynamic relationship of love where Jesus honored his Father and loved his Father. And this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That isn't just an after-the-fact thought. That is a reality that can exist and have eternal importance, internal significance, primarily because of this, this reality. So when you envision this prose word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with, that's the prose word, God, face-to-face, there was interaction, all those things. So now, today, when you pray, or I pray, and we have an expectation of an answer, it's not an arbitrary expectation. It's an expectation based on the dynamic of the word being with God in the presence of God. Does that make sense? So that's really super important. It'll be a part of the foundation for what's going on later. All right. Uh, He's the true light. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, and there was the true light, the phos to alethanon, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is our hope. This is our hope against darkness. This is our hope against blindness. This is our hope against confusion. Jesus' life is the light. So when you read, like I had an instance where I was at a pastor's prayer meeting uh, on Wednesday, and one of the scriptures that was emphasized in the course of the prayer was, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I have become enamored enough with Jesus being the centerpiece of what comes from God to us that it wasn't hard for me to hear that and think in terms of, so this is Jesus shining in the darkness. And the darkness didn't understand it, but arise and shine, your light has come. So it it speaks of this union, this connectedness that we have with God, and anything that helps us, and the whole reason I'm, I think, going through this stuff, anything that helps us not feel like we're on the outside trying to serve God in some remote way, but that we are on the inside walking with God, is what I want us to to have access to in our hearts. So, that's enough review. How was that? All right, so now we're asking, Jesus, what are you doing? And the first place I wanted to look was uh, a a pretty interesting statement in Matthew. Jesus is teaching, and again, we're going to let him, for the most part, answer his own own words. But at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So, here's something that you can look at and see this idea of the Son being with the Father, being a God with him, being together in one, and being one of purpose. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What's important about that statement? We act like God is discoverable outside of Jesus. We act like we can get to know the Father independent of Jesus. And what I mean by that, and I know it sounds like a kind of a harsh statement, but if you've ever read a story out of the Old Testament and without thinking about Jesus, created an interpretive picture in your mind about who God was, what he was like, and how he acts in certain situations, you have fallen victim to the temptation to know God apart from Jesus. I've done it. I've done it. It doesn't mean that, that and, and, and the sad part about that, I think, is that when we do that and don't recognize it, then we, we divide up into camps and we say, well, I, I don't you know, I, I'm a New Testament guy, or I'm an Old Testament guy. No, 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 no. There's none of that. There's none of that. What's real, what's real about that is when Jesus encountered the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he dis- encountered the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he took the time to read, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and explain to them him. And after that explanation, when he appeared at the time of breaking bread, after that explanation, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Because that is the revelation of the truth, the true light. Jesus is the light that we can see the unseen Father, the unseen God by. And it's really important that we, we allow ourselves. Now, it's not a restrictive thing. It just means that you're not limited to knowing God by the fact that you aren't a biblical historian or a language expert. Because you and I have been given the Son to know Him by. Yes, Ronnie. This is the first time I've thought about it this way, but it says no one knows the Son except the Father. So how are we supposed to know the Son? I don't know. Okay, just thought I'd ask. Here, here's my only uh, slight explanation. Uh, knowing this statement is pretty important, and it 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 depicts a pretty it depicts a pretty exclusive club, right? That in the knowing of the Father and in the knowing of the Son. It's a very tiny group. It's the Father that knows the Son, the Son that knows the Father. But then the next verse that comes down is, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now that could also be problematic in our heart, thinking about it, if it wasn't immediately followed, which we're not going to look at right now, but if it wasn't immediately followed by, so all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. So, Eternal life, Jesus says in John chapter 17, is knowing you, talking about his Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. Eternal life is, maybe this will get to the answer to your question. It feels like it will. 
Eternal life is what is characterized in that little yellow expression there where it says, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Why do they know one another? How do they know one another? Because they experience eternal life. And that life that is bound up and is demonstrated and is exercised by their knowledge of one another in the Spirit is the eternal life that we are being invited to. We underestimate the significance of our invitation into eternal life when we make it just living a long time in a nice place called heaven. No, it's about the intimate knowledge that exists between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. Epinosis? Yeah, the full knowledge, the, 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 the unveiled knowledge, the, the, the knowledge of all. So that's the nature of our eternal life. So, Ronnie, what I think is, is you don't get the knowledge of the Son without the Father. No one comes to me except the Father draws him, Jesus says. And you don't get the knowledge of the Father without the Son. No one knows the, the Father except the Son and those to whom he wills to reveal him. But the, but, but the problem that isn't a problem in that is that that's why Jesus came. That's what he's doing. He is revealing the Father. He's revealing the Father. And that kind of gets us to the first of the major, major points we'll talk about. Look down here, though. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. All right, so let's look at what that really says, because I realized as I was preparing for this that I had read it wrong most of my life, which is not unusual. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Jesus qualified that by saying, a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. And therefore, I thought, okay, yeah, so as a slave, see, again, I was thinking in terms of distance. I was thinking in terms of the master lives up in the big house, and he's the one that runs the business. And I, I am down here, and I have a role to play, but there's a distance there's a, 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 a substantial distance between us, a distance of knowing, a distance of understanding, a distance of I don't really know. And, 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 and his heart, my master's heart then becomes less important to me because I don't have any control over it. I can't know what is there. What Jesus is saying here is no. He didn't contrast it with saying, I'm going to reveal everything. He says, I have uh, called you friends for And the reason is, all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So this is the fulfillment of of the seeming exclusion of of the Matthew passage. No one knows the Father except the Son. But I have told you everything. And there's other places that we won't be able to get to, but you can think about them. Jesus, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, Spirit of truth comes, he will... Take what the Father has given me, and he will declare it over you. And oh, by the way, the Father's given me everything. So what I want you to start seeing is the answer to the dilemma of not knowing the, the Son except the Father, not knowing the Father except the Son, is that the dynamic that exists between Jesus and his Father in the Spirit is what he came for. He came to give that to us. He came to make that known to us. So we're not in a place where we have to 
penetrate the darkness and figure God out, He's giving us that knowledge. He's giving us eternal life. Now, I'm all for studying. I'm all for thinking. I do it a lot. But I have made known to you all that I've heard from my Father. Jesus didn't have to invent it. We don't have to invent it. We just have to learn to to listen. We just have to learn to hear. Here Here is one of these ways. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And here's why. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I don't think it's possible for us to overthink and overestimate the magnitude of that statement. Remember when we talked about the gospel and I said Jesus himself is the good news. And the thing that I was hoping that we could combat by thinking about that was that Jesus, the view that Jesus fundamentally is a tool used by the Father, by God, to fix the sin problem. And then after that's fixed, he gets drawn back up to the throne, patted on the back, good job, son. And then his role is somewhat over. He's sitting there passively waiting until the kingdom comes, the, the, the church gets its back together. A lot of people think that way. A lot of people think that way. And that was why I, I didn't want us to enter this thought with the concept that the gospel is just Jesus fixing sin. And I don't know if you would have answered that way or not, but I know, I know thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians would say the thing Jesus came for, the most important thing he came for, was to, to die for our sin, to take our sin on himself, to die for our sin, to be punished for our sin, or whatever, however we want to phrase it. But no, I'm saying Jesus came to bring into our realm, to bring before our eyes, to bring in a way that our heart could accept and believe and engage the fullness of deity in bodily form. So this is another reason why you want to be really careful and I want to be really careful looking to understand God, looking to anticipate how God is going to react without Jesus being front of mind in that question and in that view. And it's really, really easy to separate who God is in our thinking from who Jesus is. Even though, you know, almost everybody would say, well, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe that they're one, da, 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 da. For instance, one of the most popular atonement theories, and I'm going to simplify it and probably do it an injustice, but the idea that, uh, the idea is penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus and God were at two different purposes on the cross. God was offended by our sin, and Jesus was trying to intercede and essentially save us from that offense. And that isn't what the Bible teaches, but it's what theology has taught for hundreds of years. What the Bible says instead, Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. 
So God wasn't punishing Christ for our trespasses. He was in Christ, not counting our trespasses against us. That's a big difference. It's a huge difference. And it's not just a misunderstanding of atonement. It drives a knife between the Father and the Son in people's thinking. And therefore, the ideas of, of union, ideas of belonging, ideas of being in Christ and all these things, they're, they're completely gutted of the kind of power that I think this means. Everything the fullness of deity. Everything that the Holy Spirit can be, except the Holy Spirit person himself, everything the Father is, except the uniqueness of the Father, was invested by the Father, by the Spirit, in Jesus. So there's nothing outside of him that constitutes the fullness of God. That's incredible. And... The next line after this, this is why this kind of stuff's important. The next line after this says, and you are complete in him. And the reason that we don't think we're complete and we don't feel like we're complete is because we don't deal with this kind of thought. We have to give this place, okay? John 17. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. See that? No one knows the Father except the Son. I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. So there's one of those connections, Ronnie, that we can focus on what Jesus is, who he is, what he does, and in doing so, we can learn of the Father. You learn of the Father. Okay? Uh, They have known you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now, I want to admit to you guys, and I'm asking the Lord about it, I don't know what it means right now. I, I, mean, I used to think I did, but I don't. I don't know what it means when Jesus says, I have made your name known to them. I don't know what the name is. I don't know whether that's Yeshua. I don't know whether that's Jehovah. I don't know what it is. So I'll keep you posted because I'm pursuing the Lord on that. Jesus, what, what exactly are we talking about here? What is the name? Your name, Father. What is your name, Righteous Father? What is your name that I have made known to them? But I don't need to know that to know what he has committed to doing. He has made it known, and he has taken responsibility to make it. That means that this dilemma that we talked about in Matthew, uh, I think it was 11, No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Jesus has taken individual responsibility as the God-man, as the Son of Man, to make this known to us. So it's not, again, it's not up to us to uh, grope about blindly in the dark to find out who God is. We need to understand that one of the things that Jesus has done is come to give us this knowledge. That's incredible. That should, that should make us not be as fretful as I am sometimes. That's what he's come to do. All right. Now, back in, in John, uh, John 118, no one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I mentioned last week that was exegomai. It means to, to consider out loud, to exegete, to relate in detail, to report, to set in great detail. So what I want you to understand, and the reason I brought this back up, is when we ask, Lord, what are you doing? What did you do, and what are you doing? Before we think about the mechanics of atonement, before we think about the mechanics of him going to the cross and granting forgiveness, and, and before we think about him revealing the power of God and healing or all this kind of stuff, we have to think about the fact that Jesus is revealing who the Father is to a world, to a Jewish nation, to a Gentile nation who had no idea. Think about all the other gods. Think about the, uh, um, the, judge, the judgment-oriented vision that was common in, in Jerusalem at that time. Think about the, the Zeus, demigod, gods that were all around the Greek and Roman world. He is revealing. Now, look at what it says. If it had just been this one verse, he explained him. I'm not exactly sure that we'd know how to take that. But look at this verse, John 14. This is at the end of the, the ministry. Uh, as Jesus preparing his disciples for his leave. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And have seen him. Now, how do you process that? No man has seen God at any time. John chapter 1. John chapter 14. Now you do know him and have seen him. The only way to process that is to acknowledge that Jesus and the Father are one. And that Jesus is the one that took humanity on himself, our humanity, your humanity, not just in some generic sense. When, he, when the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all to himself. He took us on, into himself. Okay? Into himself. So, has anybody seen God at any time? Well, yeah. Now, in Christ. We have to be okay with that. Here's why. My sheep are my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. How, how does Jesus give us eternal life? What's he given us? He's giving us the knowledge of his Father. And in the knowledge of his Father, actually preceding receiving the knowledge of his Father, the Father has drawn us to Jesus and shared his knowledge of his Son. This is it. This is the simplicity of this gospel. And this is why we have to, I think, well, uh, let me hold off 30 seconds before I say that. And I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. All right, so now, in light of what we've been talking about, let me just point out two seemingly sort of insignificant phrases. Jesus says in one, with one sentence, 
no one will snatch them out of my hand. In the next sentence, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Do you see them acting in concert? Do you see them acting as one? I remember a time in my development when I used to just strain over gnats about whether you prayed in Jesus' name or you prayed to the Father. But it was because I was entrenched in a theology that although it denied it outwardly, it, it structured it in such a way that they were very different and had very different purposes. And, and so a true understanding of who Jesus is and why he came helps break that down. He came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was for him and himself to be revealed to you and me. That's the point. That is why Jesus came. And then, of course, this idea of one, just simple. It's, it means a single person or thing with a focus on quantitative aspect or a focus that's different than being multiples or minis. Yes, Richard. Um, <laughs> this scripture just reminds me of uh, how I was taught this. <laughs> That, uh, you know, you're, my father who has given me as, or can't snatch him out of his hand. But you can jump out. Uh-huh. And then you're backslidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I always thought, well, how do I jump out of God's hand? <laughs> anyway, I always yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So here we go. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time. But here we have an illustration that one look at Jesus undoes that prohibition that was first talked about when God said to Moses, No man can look on me and live. God didn't change. Jesus came. Or, the Father didn't change. He sent Jesus. See what I'm talking about? And so we have, to, we have to let Jesus be the defining factor of the gospel. We have to let him be why we can know God, how we can know God. Yeah. Richard's a lot taller than most of us. He is. Um, I think that we get hung up on the name name, and, and what name really means is nature. Mm-hmm. So when he stepped into the earth, he brought in the nature of the Father so that everybody could see it, and he sacrificed it all for everybody. So I think whether you call him Jesus or Yeshua or Father or God. however you're doing it, it you're, you're connecting with the nature of who he is, yeah. which is where we kind of miss in the translation because everybody thinks, oh, I have to say in the name of, mm-hmm. and there, it, you know. One's right, one's wrong, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, it's the nature of who he is and what it is that he came here to do. Absolutely. Because he was a direct um, reflection in the earth to everybody of the nature of the Father, which is to love everybody. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you look ahead in my notes? Um, no, those are just my notes. Okay, that's great. That's fantastic. Dan? This is interesting to look at. Uh, try reading that John 14, 8 to 10, 8 while holding the notion of penal substitutionary atonement in your head. Oh. 
Yeah. You can't. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. <laughs> because it, it makes it, no it, sense. And it's not because we don't deserve it or anything right. like that or that sin's not bad. It's that it tears the father and son apart. Right. And he, there's a unified purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's how you know something that a lot of people believe. Like, I remember, I remember when I first started wrestling with the whole idea of how to back out of, of what was just a given in, in my theology for 30 years, you know. And I, I stood in front of uh, my library. I used to have an office over in the old building. And I have my books over there and commentaries and stuff. And I remember one day literally standing there and saying, "How do who am I to disagree with these? But something so central as this. Well, I'm a person who by the grace of God has been given that grace to see Jesus as more central than I was taught. To see him as more key than I understood. And once you do it, you can't look back. Yeah, that's a brilliant comment, man. You can't read this with penal substitution in mind. It doesn't fit. Here's another one that doesn't fit uh, with penal substitution or any, any of that kind of judgmental thing. In John chapter, I think it's 13. Uh, I think it's 13. might be in 12. I think it's 13. There's something, and we talked about this on Tuesday. Never heard anybody ever preach on this passage personally. Jesus says, if you hear my words and don't do what I say, I'm not going to judge you. Because I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. The words themselves will judge you. I mean, have you ever heard a pastor, you'd get fired in most churches, if you said, so here's what Jesus says. If you hear his words and you don't do them, he's not going to judge you. Huh? No. Jesus is God. He has the... Hang on. He has... This is why we've got to let this work on our thinking a little bit. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. I'm not, I can't get to a, to a judgment thing. There is judgment. We'll talk about that when we get going. But if we don't understand that the fundamental, primary... Number one reason Jesus came is to make the Father known. We will keep things like justification, judgment, all that stuff. We will keep that as our primary interpretive lens, and we will miss the point. We will miss the point. And to tell you about how missing the point is so damaging if you go in a Christian bookstore, at least I haven't been in a while, but if uh, five, ten years ago, you would have row after row after row of books about the orphan spirit, about how to rekindle your relationship with the Father God. As if, what? It needs to be rekindled? As if Jesus wasn't the demonstration of the Father's heart towards us? If he wasn't the love. But, but see, we, we work and we accept the assumption that because these are at odds with one another, um, that, that we've got to somehow get hooked back up with the Father in some way or, or, or bend his heart to us or something. And this is what I want us to understand. That's why I, I, I well, I'll show you. So here's the next verse. 
And I kind of went goofy on this one, but this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And this is why I ask if you looked ahead in my notes, Shannon. God, after he spoke, in the words of Lilio, long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance, and I think the Greek word is pronounced apogosma, the radiance of his glory, doxa, and the exact representation, both those words are a translation of this word, in this interesting Greek word, character. Character. Let that sink in a little bit. The English word, the Greek root that we get the English word character from. The exact representation, the character of his nature, and then this got me all excited because I'm like a theology nerd, hypostasis. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. And he upholds all things by the word, the rhema of his power. I'm not going to have a chance to go through all those, but and then it finishes up, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So let's, let's look ahead a little bit here. So this word, uh, apogosma, is translated variously. It's only used, this word's only used in uh, Hebrews uh, 1.3. It's translated radiance or effluence, effluence and it, it means light shining from a luminous body. And it comes from these two Greek roots, apo, age, from brightness. It's also discussed and dialogued among uh, lexical uh, scholars and stuff as as it can say reflection. The reason I included the idea of reflection is there's that beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it says something to this effect. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it and kind of butcher it. But it says, God who called light out of darkness has chosen to let the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ shine, or light of the glory of the gospel shine from the face of Christ. God has chosen that. Reflect back on Colossians. In him, the fullness of deity is shared in bodily form. This is why Jesus came so that we can know God, so that we can see the unseen God, so that we can relate and receive life from God. Okay? So, that's that word. And character. The word originally meant a graver, either the tool or the person, a sculptor, carver. And then it became, as it migrated on in in, uh, the history of the Greek language and then got up to the time of the New Testament, as the character or the figure stamped or carved. And it generally represents an exact copy or representation. So one, one way to think of this word is the die and the process that stamps on a gold coin the image of whatever, or any kind of coin, really, the image of Caesar. It could also be the tools and the person wielding the tools that creates a sculpture, that carves something in a likeness of something else. So... Michelangelo would be the sculptor. His chisels and hammers would be part of this word. And what he made was an image of David or whatever the scripture was. You were there. All right. And then this hypostasis is broken down into the, the hupo and uh, histomy. Understanding, it, I wouldn't have just put that in if I didn't have a chance to talk about it because it would be weird to read it that way. But it, it means like the thing standing under the thing that is, like the foundation. So... 
the importance of this, the importance of this nature, remember it's translated nature up there, is that the thing, the thing undergirding who God is is what Jesus has revealed. It's not just a recitation of his behavior. It is the reflection, the exact representation of his heart, of his mind. And that takes us back to the understanding of the logos being the expression of the mind and the idea, the logic of God. Jesus is virtually everything about the heart of the Father that has been expressed to you and me. And that is why it is such a crime to look elsewhere to try to discern who God is. Even if that elsewhere is in an inspired story from the Old Testament, you have to keep Jesus in mind if you're to understand properly what you read about the flood or what you read about Nineveh or what you read about the Babylonian captivity or what you read about Job. I love the way Bill Johnson addresses the Job question. He said, Job's important, but Job is the question. Jesus is the answer. And however we can begin to condition and train ourselves to when we think of God, think of Jesus. Not an exclusion to God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, not an exclusion to Yahweh or Elohim or any of those kind of things. But if we'll, if we'll do this and if we'll put ourselves in a position to receive the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in that most confusing of time, not knowing why Jesus was killed, not knowing all this kind of stuff, he will explain all these scriptural stories, all this history, all this purpose, all this redemptive plan to us and show where he fits in it. And where he fits is the one who alone has immortality in life, right? He is the one alone who knows the Father. He is the one alone who has taken all of humanity into himself. So the first thing, my sort of conclusion about that, the first thing about the first answer to the question, Jesus, what did you do? What are you doing? Is what? Reveal the Father. That is the most significant, foundational, intentional ministry of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to think that that gives us permission to blow off his uh, atoning sacrifice. I don't want you to think it you know, uh, we have a permission to get rid of his teaching and not do this, not do that. But these things, this revelation that Jesus is the shining out of his glory and the character, the exposition of the character of his nature is the most fundamental thing. And if you'll, if you'll always turn to Jesus when you're trying to understand your Father. If you'll always turn to Jesus when you're trying to understand the Holy Spirit, the door in your heart and mind will be open for understanding. And that's what I, I am committed that, that we, we be able to do. Because 
It's not like there's just a couple of uh, personality points that Jesus is trying to reveal. He knows His Father. And He wants us to know His Father because to know His Father, Jesus knows that to know His Father as His Father in is the delight of the ages. To know your Father doesn't present you with the problem of overcoming an orphan spirit. It is the definitive answer to any temptation to have anything. So what the other, the other point that comes from this, and I've got some questions coming up. The other point that comes from this is that, so I had a conversation on Wednesday with a group of pastors, and we've been meeting for a few months, once a month, and talking about my thoughts on childness and some of their thoughts and you know being a child of God and so on. And one of the brothers uh, asked a really sincere and heartfelt question, and he was going, he was coming at it from, you know, like you do when you've got a, a question that's stuck in your craw and you're not getting the answer. And it was basically, okay, so well and good. I know I'm in Jesus and everything, but what about my relationship, the experience that I have with God? How do I, how do I cultivate my relationship? So we're sitting there just chatting and talking, and something dawned on me, and I shared it. It had a significant amount of stickiness and power in that conversation. And, and it's what I want to show you out of what we looked at today. If we discard the thought that the primary reason Jesus came was to take a body on himself so he could die, and in that death, because he was actually innocent, he could uh, facilitate the Father forgiving our sins, okay? If, if, if we let that be a part of what he did, but not the primary reason he came, and if we push the primary reason back to revealing the Father, revealing the Father, then I said to, to this brother, I said, what if, you're, what if you're going about your pursuit of this experience with the wrong question? What if you're, instead of asking, so how do I get and experience a relationship with God? I said, what if the real question that might open the door is based not upon your need to get a relationship or develop a relationship with your Father or with God? What if you need to receive what Jesus came to give, which is the knowledge and the experience of His relationship with his father and your father, his God and your God. Remember when Jesus, after the resurrection, said to Mary, go tell my brother that I'm going to be with, I'm going to go to my father and your father, my God and your God. I don't know. It it struck that group of guys um, as a big deal. But I want you to ponder that. Instead of if we, if we pursue the question, how do I experience God? How do I experience my Father? At the root of that question is the assumption that we don't already have one. And there's plenty of evidence in the world around us and plenty of people, including the devil, who want to accuse us of that fact and try to establish that as a baseline. You don't have what you need, but you need to try to get it. That's what he basically said to Eve. 
You don't have what you need. You don't already have what you need. But you need to get it. And therefore, life becomes a 41,000 denomination, fragmented body of Christ. All who think that this or that or this or that is the key to getting that back. If we can forsake that kind of fragmented thinking, and we can look to Jesus and reveal and, 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 and say, okay, what I need, I cannot get on my own because no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. But I, who am weary of trying to force my way into a circle that I can't breach, I'm coming to realize I don't need to do that. You have brought that circle to me. And that's why at the beginning I was saying some form of understanding of the the perichoretic nature, the perichoresis nature of the Trinity, that the Father is the Father and He's not the Son, the Son is the Son, not the Father, the Spirit is the Spirit, not the Father and the Son, but they are one, they are one, creates the dynamic of communication, of love, of holiness, of speech, of everything creates the place that makes room for us. We can fit in the gaps in that relationship. Not the gaps, the openings, because there's no gaps. We can fit in the opening of that relationship. That is what we are invited into. That is what Jesus came to share. His face-to-face relation with God as God. You go back to the beginning of John and you start reading it in that light, it gets super exciting. Okay, Lord, so you chose to create us for the exact purpose of fitting us in the dynamic of the relationship with Jesus. So, we may run out of question and answer time. Uh, Here are, I've got seven things up here that, that I just want you to think about. Revealing the Father by sharing his own personal knowing. So what did Jesus do? He came to reveal the Father, and he didn't do it as a teacher per se. He did it as a son, sharing his own nature, his own personal knowing of the Father. Second, carrying in his body the fullness of deity. He came to bring God into humanity in a way that we could understand. He made and is making the Father's name known relationally. And I think you're absolutely right, Shannon. It's the whole thing about who he is, his nature. Allowing men and women to see the God, and I love using this word. I try to use this word in common speech all the time, heretofore. Isn't that a cool word? It's a cool word, yeah. Uh, Allowing us to see the God heretofore, unseen. You could say previously if you weren't trying to be pretentious. Displaying the works and the heart of the Father in his own words and acts. Remember he said, these uh, words are not my own. They're the Father doing his work in me. My favorite application of this that makes it make sense to me, uh, the woman caught in adultery, brought before the temple. We know what God thinks of adultery. Jesus showed us what the Father thinks about people victimized by it. He protected her. He said, neither do I condemn you. It's a revelation of the heart of the Father. And literally being the speaking voice of God in these last days, that's out of that passage of Hebrews. And many times, uh, in times past, in many ways, God spoke through the fathers and men of old, but in these last days, he's spoken to us. And the reason that I italicize the word his 
of his son is it's not in the text. So he has spoken to us in son. Jesus is the voice of the heart and mind of the Father. And that's why we cannot afford to take a prophet's voice or a historical recorder's voice and give it authority over Jesus' voice. He will interpret those things. And lastly, he is the shining display of God's glory, and he is really a true sculpture of the very nature and essence of God. I'll leave that up for a second. I see some folks taking pictures of it. So does it make sense? I mean, would you feel comfortable pondering the idea that if somebody asks you, so what's the primary reason that Jesus came, or what is the primary thing Jesus does? You say, oh, well, that's easy. It's to reveal the Father. And they're going to look at you funny. And, and so let me go to the next slide. This is what we're going to look at next week. In the process of revealing the Father, he did deal with the sin issue. He made purification for sin. And then this scripture begins to add some understanding to that mystical thing that Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. (laughs) Because this begins to add context to the it is finished on the cross. He made purification for sin. That's what we're going to start looking at. But can you agree with me, or can you see why it's important to me, that unless we give the priority to Jesus revealing the Father, we're always going to misunderstand this idea of dying for our sins according to Scripture and and purification for sin. And the, the misunderstanding tears apart the Father and the Son in purpose and creates an adversarial relationship between us and our Father that Jesus has to fix. And that is the furthest thing from the truth in the Gospel. Okay? Make sense? All right. Time for me to go. And then Ronnie... I I believe I have the answer to your question. Which is, how if no one knows the Son except the Father, how are we supposed to know the Son? Paul discovered in his own experience the answer to this question that you asked. And he talked about it in uh, Galatians chapter 1. And he was talking about how you guys know my former manner of life and I used to persecute the church. But Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says... But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's how. As a matter of fact, I think that's the only way. And so if you're here and you know Jesus... The simplicity of this boiling down of what he did means that God the Father revealed him in you. So this goes a long way, Olaf, when we ask questions about, well, how do we hear or how do we do? When at the foundation of the gift of God is the Father revealing his Son in us. And when the foundation of the coming of Jesus is to teach us to legitimately say, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
All the rest is really just a journey of discovery, filling in the blanks. But we start, we start as direct objects of the love and grace of the Father and the power and grace of the Son. Amen? So bless you guys. Bless you guys. And, and I just want you to think this week uh, and rehearse the answer a couple times in your head. What is the primary thing Jesus came to do? Reveal the Father. Amen?